This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name's Joris Peels, and we're in for another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, uh, today uh, we have a very interesting gentleman uh, by the name of Andrew Elshorn, who got his start as a model maker and was uh, well, probably one of the first SLA technicians in the world, really, way back in uh, like 1993, 1994. Kind of like grew with the, with the 3D printing business to do all sorts of things, like uh, own a company that metalized uh, 3D printed parts. Uh, he was an application engineer at 3D Systems way in the beginning and built a couple other 3d printing businesses uh now he's a vice president a mug as well the under manufacturing user group and the big well now it's probably known for its conference and uh probably has uh, knows a fair bit about 3d printing and also a uh, noted saver of horses uh using 3d printing <laughs> and uh, so welcome to the show uh andrew Olsram. thanks very much guys it's a it's a pleasure to be here how, you got your start in 3D printing, like, I, th- I want to say fairly early, but like, like, like it's almost impossibly <laughs> early. Uh, yeah, it uh, was. Um, so my background is I'm an artist, so I went to art college. So it's a bit different to the, most engineers. Um, but I specialized in product design. And when you design something in college, you have to make a model. Uh, and I got pretty good at that. So when I left, I ended up working in a traditional model makers. And then one of my colleagues, I was there for about 10 years, and one of my colleagues moved to America to Lockheed Martin, came back, and we went out for a beer, and he said, have you seen this new technology? I'm like, no. And he said, 3D printing. And I said, no. And I'd actually seen a golf club head made from QuickCast. And he said to me, if you get a chance, he said, get involved in it. This is going to be huge. And then two weeks later, there was a job advertised to run the 13th SLA machine in the UK at Liverpool University. Jumped at it, took a pay cut, and yeah, never looked back. <laughs> and in the in the early days, this is like a SLA, what, 250 or something? Or what was that? Was that a... Yeah, it's a, two, it's a 250-40, and I actually mm-hmm. still own it, and it still works. Oh, wow. Yeah, those things. I've seen a bunch of them. I've seen like, like a Materialize still has one, huh? And, well, I uh, Materialize um, convert them into, yeah. Uh, up-to-date versions, but I've actually put a solid-state laser on mine as well. Yeah? <laughs> Seriously, you, you modeled it. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but I think it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, the architecture of the machine is fairly simple, so it's, it's it's much easier to do that with an SLA machine than another one. But it does really ask a testament to the, a really good build quality of those things as well, right? Yeah, and that, and that one actually still runs on DOS. So yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, not many, there's not many people around in the world that um, actually understand that so it's uh it's interesting yeah oh wow dude and you, do you actually use it day-to-day or every once in a while or what uh i donated it to a school so in, back in 2012 yeah. i bought it i got it because the university was selling it and donated it to a school because i back then i saw the benefits of educating people mm-hmm. um but it was really difficult because it was something i was trying to do on my own and trying to get help off local governments and it was so hard to get them in because nobody knew what it was Mm-hmm. Uh, we went and then we we did it and we opened a little additive manufacturing center in a local high school. They had a, a small bits of a bytes printer that they had to assemble themselves, 
And the reason I bought them this one is I wanted each year the kids to actually put it together so they understood understood how it worked. At the end of the year, they put it in the box. So the next year, the next set of kids came. Because if you manu- if you build one, you understand how it works. Mm-hmm. And then they have right. a, little, a little scanner and a happy It's cam. cute, though, that you had the kids uh, have to reassemble it every year. That's a good way of kind of fostering knowledge on that. I, I like yeah, that. I think when I first went in to look at it, they'd actually got the X and the Y motors switched over. So... Again, it was it, yeah, it, and then, but then as long as you educate the kids and show them how how to do it, then they learn. Right. Uh-huh. But in the, in the very early days, let's say of, of uh, running that SLA lab, I mean, slicing was fun, I bet, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we had a yeah, we we had a um, a computer called the Unigraphics, uh-huh. and, and I think at the time that computer was about forty thousand pounds. <laughs> it was the sort of thing that the only other companies that used it were well, the F one teams used them. Um, mm-hmm. Disney, mm-hmm. and right. I I used to put a slice. So there was no support. There was a support software called BridgeWorks, and basically um, you had to type the commands in to create the supports, and then you would slice it, and then see if the supports were in the right place. If you missed a downward angle, you had to type another command in. So there was a manual that came with this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was really was it like a phone book thick manual. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, it, but the good thing about it is you you have to remember to put the parts, no, the support files in front of the part files because if you didn't, they had to build. They built in order basically. So if you put a part file above a support file, it would start building a part before <laughs> supports. Oops. And also, it, also if you hit slice, yeah, you yeah. depending on the file, you could sort of. Hit slice, go home, come back in the day after, and it might have finished. <laughs> <laughs> but and, uh, and you didn't miss uh, your clay and uh, the tools uh, to manually well, do it. <laughs> I think that's something that you still need with it. You know, um, I was more of a designer at the model makers, but they knew I could make models, so they'd ask me to get involved if they needed a spare set of hands. But then. The university also had a vacuum casting system, so right. it was like a little thing set up to help SMEs, so small to medium enterprises, use the technology who couldn't afford it. And so mm-hmm. I was, it was still involved with the model making and finishing, and that is still a critical part of this industry. And did you really were you as optimistic after a couple of years in that this would be like the technology that took over everything? <laughs> yeah, to be honest, the, one of the most exciting things that made me realize the possibilities was the first I actually. Didn't know anything about CAD, uh, but because the university had a CAD system in there, they had, um, i trying to think what it was called now, uh, Pro Engineer or something like that, or Unigraphics it was. And I used to get, I, I used to live in North Wales and the university's in Liverpool, so there's a tunnel that goes underneath. And I used to hate sitting in the traffic, so I used to go in early and I taught myself how to do CAD. And then a guy came in with a sketch on a, on a piece of paper and said, I need this making. And I went from drawing it up to holding the thing in my hand in four hours. It was only a simple spacer, and I just thought, wow. To actually go from drawing it yourself to holding the thing, that's mm-hmm. one of them. That's when I, it sort of makes you open your eyes. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, but everything was quite limited at the time. But then, of course, you got a chance a couple of years later to work for three systems as a, an applications engineer. So, so basically, um, after two years, the um, one of the sales guys at 3D Systems approached me and offered me a job as an applications engineer. And, yeah, I started. So I was at Liverpool there for two years, just over. 
ended up working for 3D Systems, and to me that was like, whoa, this is amazing. I had to give a presentation to all the salespeople because uh, they were all engineers, and I'm coming in as a user that's done that casting and everything, mm-hmm. um, and do a presentation. Yeah. And then one of the first things that came up was, um, where can we sell more of these machines? The first answer was, is anybody dealing with Formula One? Because I'd actually deal, de- dealt with uh jordan grand prix when i was at liverpool university mm-hmm. and this shows you how things have advanced when i first went to jordan grand prix to try and talk about 3d printing with them they didn't he even have a cad program wow so that's an f1 yeah. team that didn't have it so and then yeah so they gave me the task of nobody's dealing with f1 so go and talk to the guys um <laughs> and i'm like that's fine by me um so i got involved with all the guys some of the people you've spoken to um, it took them a while to get the first machine into an F1 team. To cut, the one that bought that, I think Williams were the first people to buy it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Pat bought one. That's um, Pat Warner or Renault or what? Oh, yeah. Oh, so what Pat, was, Pat, I think yeah. it was actually Benetton at the time. Yeah, uh, it was a Benetton at the time, which is now Renault, which is now Alpine, right? Alpine, yeah. yeah. So Pat's a really good friend. And the good thing about Pat is when we get together, it's we don't think that we can't do something with it, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We get a right. challenge. We get a challenge, and then it's like, okay, mm-hmm. how do we do it? And yeah, I work work closely with some of the teams, Pat in particular. And yeah, sometimes he hasn't got the time to do it. I think he's getting a bit more time now. But uh, yeah, they were the challenges, and that's what keeps me really interested in this technology. In this whole time, what's been the most surprising thing that you've applied? How slow, to? How, how slow it's been, to be honest. You know, when I, <laughs> When I first got involved, it was a case of, I actually thought that within 10 years, everybody would have one of these. At the time, I suppose the the main thing was the cost of them. It was only limited, Mm -hmm. you know, automotive, aerospace, Formula One, big OEMs. Um, So I got to go into some really interesting places, see things that other people don't see. And it was, yeah, it was, to me, it was just an honor to get the chance to be able to see these things before other people do and see how the design side of things works in relation to the 3D printing. And in Formula One at the time, it was mainly it was mainly wind tunnel stuff, right? Or No, the first thing that, now we're allowed to talk about it, unfortunately we couldn't at the time. So the first thing that all of the F1 teams wanted to produce uh, was a suspension, uh, not a suspension upright. Um, yeah, suspension upright. So it was actually the bit that the wheel clamps onto. Yeah, what? so the wheel goes onto it. Oh, to yeah. have a quick release, you mean, system? Yeah, no, ba- no, basically this thing used to take four weeks to machine. Right. The suspension upright. Yeah, and it was a really complex um, made from titanium. And then they all want to do look at doing this using quick cast. So quick cast is the process where the part is made, it's hollowed out, and there's a honey cast system inside it, a honeycomb system inside it, and you drain the resin out, and you can use it as a master pattern for investment casting. But it's like time, an amazing, it's like an amazing technology that no one has quite figured out. <laughs> yeah, well, I, so I, I'd actually had the chance to actually do it with three D systems. You got trained to do it, and then, mm. um, yeah, it was basically getting there, and then. I had to look and find out, right, which foundry can do this? The only foundry that could do it was a company, a foundry called Doncasters in Sheffield, and they had an arm in France, which was called Tital, and they were the only people that could cast in titanium. So mm-hmm. the guy turned up at, at one of the F1 teams, and we handed him this component, and he said, that's nice, but can I have it in wax? And uh, mm-hmm. basically said, nope, that's what we get, and he, was, you know, he wasn't sure about it. And now it's a standard process. 
so to, to actually go from sort of looking, finding out who, who can do these things and mm-hmm. yeah, opening people's eyes, it's been yeah, very rewarding. I can imagine. And what were some other components you were making then in the early days? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, a lot of wind. It, it became a fantastic way of making wind tunnel parts. Um, well, if, uh, and then automotive parts, aerospace parts. I got involved a long time ago, so making injection mold tools. So producing it. So at the, at the time with an SLA machine, there were two resins. There was acrylic, which was very fast, but not really accurate. And the day after, you'd have a bent part. And there was uh, epoxy, which was really, really accurate, a bit slower, but so accurate, it was really good. So I looked into tooling, and we did some injection mold tools for, I think that was for Black & Decker at the time. And they wanted a little clamp to hold a, a foot onto a hand electric sander. Mm-hmm. But they needed sort of 300 in glass-filled nylon so that they could actually send samples out for people to test and get feedback. So what we did is we made this little tool, and also I... I made the tool in a sort of reversed, I think differently because I'm an artist. I did things back to front. So I cut the part in half, stuck half of the part on a flat, on a flat plate in CAD, mm-hmm. and then we can cast an, uh, an aluminium filled epoxy on top of it. And the good thing about that is you don't have to finish inside a cavity. You're, mm-hmm. you're finishing the outside of a part so you get a smooth component. And then we fitted that onto what's called a manual mold, which is an injection mold machine that you basically sits on a bench top and you just push it by hand. Mm-hmm. And we got, uh, yeah, we got 300 off that and probably about half a day. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, that, there was no way of doing it before. And they got this one piece solid injection molded part in glass filled nylon. So that's one of the other things that's been interesting. Oh, definitely, definitely. And was it like you were kind of part, partially trying to be an evangelist, and but also like people wanted realistic solutions, but the kind of like money, no object type of solutions that had to work, right? Yeah, I, I think, well, at the time, we were more, more like, lead, like I said, working with the F1 terms, you were pushing the technology because there wasn't many people had it mm-hmm. and one of the things yeah getting a challenge somebody when, especially when someone says you can't do that and then to see the look on the face when you turn around and it's done is mm-hmm. uh yeah it's fun and then also it helps other people understand that they have to think differently when they're using this technology a lot mm-hmm. of people in the early days were always thinking about how they machine it how they do things like electrical boxes in in cars they were all square mm-hmm. Yeah, because that was the easiest thing to machine. They were all made from right. alumi- all made from aluminium. Yeah, so I worked again. That was one I did with Pat, where we um, I just said to the guy, "We can actually make a, a box that's on one side is the internal shape of your car. If you've got a a board inside it which is an L shape, we can actually print it as an L shape." And then I actually got involved with how can we make it RFI shielded, and I found a, a company in the UK that did. Uh, silver metal sp- for silver paint spraying, and they did all the RFI shielding on Nokia phones. So we painted this thing, and it came back with a certificate to say this is this has been tested; it's working fine. And when we went to put it into the vehicle, we were basically the guy with the electronics said, "I'm not putting my board inside a plastic box." <laughs> all right, and then ten, ten, year, ten years later, it became a standard thing. So. It's it's frustrating, so because you know, I'm I'm a person. Let's have a go. Let's try it. Let's right. break it. Mm-hmm. 
I want to know. That's what. That's one of the things I learned the most about working in the university with an SLA machine is, if it wasn't building parts for customers, I was working with students, and if it wasn't, then I could actually play with the thing. And what I'd do is I'd build a part, and it might take four hours, and I said, mm, "Can I build it in two by changing parameters?" Yeah. Can I build it in one? No. Okay. One hour ten, it works, and that's how I learned about building different geometries and what you can do and the limits that the machine. Now, people find it funny because sometimes I'll sit and look at a machine and I'll say, we can speed that recoder up. And it's because I'm watching what the material's doing inside. The biggest problem with most bureaus is they haven't got time to do that because they've got to build the parts and mm-hmm. it's got to be reliable. So, yeah, that's just sitting and watching a machine is uh, a bit sad, really. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, when I got my first 3D printer, I used to sit and watch it. I, I used to have it in my bedroom, actually, because New York City apartment and all. Oh, and I would sit there and watch the damn thing. So, <laughs> That's not a good idea, by the way. Anyone who's listening to this, this podcast is most likely uh, yeah, I'm thinking, similar. I, 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 are you still married? <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. Yeah. Yeah. When I got married, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had to move the 3D printer out of the bedroom. Yeah. That's, that's a sensible headaches. idea. Sensible idea. Yeah, yeah. There's headaches all the time. I swear it's the ABS. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think it was more the noise that pissed her off. ABS headaches are horrible. Man. Ah, yeah, ABS. Uh, <laughs> probably really good for us. <laughs> all of this, anyway. Um, and uh, okay, so and Andrew, like, did you have other customers in Formula One? You stayed in Formula One for quite a while, or no? I, well, when I worked, so I worked for three D Systems for quite a few years. Left there, and I set up my own bureau with a with a guy, and I had an SLA. 3500 and a DTM SLS machine and vacuum nice. casting and an injection mold. So I got all that experience and then we set up a company just doing that really. So, and mm-hmm. then more and more people got involved in SLAs. So <laughs> this is an interesting story. So I used to make components for a company that makes um, slot machines and the com- basically it controlled all the money and where everything went. So this guy kept sending me these files and I'm building these parts. And I said, look, come over. I'll show you how the machine works. And he came across. And on these parts, there was always lots of hexagons. I said to him, I said, why is there so many hexagons on there? And he said, they're not meant to be hexagons. They're meant to be round, but you can't build a, a cylinder on an SLA machine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what? I said, and I showed him. I said, there you go. And basically, he didn't. And this is one thing that uh, people have to learn about. There's settings in the CAD package to actually change this, the <laughs> angle of oh, deviation. So I basically said, see that? And I took him, he took me to his CAD and I could slide that across. And then he's mm-hmm. like, when the first time he saw one of his parts with the cylinder on, he was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing, like, again, oh, in, yeah. in the early days, which we had to solve problems that nobody had come into before. And what, a lot of them have been CAD related. So I remember I put a test build on a, on a machine, and uh, I won't mention the CAD type of what it was, but basically I set this build going, and I put test builds on the machine, built fine. Next minute, I put a customer build on, and it was taking hours to do each layer. And then we're looking at it, what's going on? I put my build on, it works fine. And then what we found out in this particular CAD package, it uh, when they build something, they actually they'll have a cutter and they'll say extrude that and take it away from there, uh, add that bit on there. 
mm-hmm. it was outputting an SGL file, this CAD package was sending all that data. So mm-hmm. you'd see it build a little bit, and then all of a sudden it'd be putting a dot in different places. And what we found was, well, what I worked out was it was basically um, you had to make the STL file an orphan. So you had to dump mm-hmm. dump the tree to build, uh, for the CAD file and output it as a single STL file, and then it worked fine. But nobody had come across that problem because they'd never used the CAD oh, yeah. to build a 3D printed model before. Oh goodness! But but you do seem to be very good at buying machines because you bought an SLA, you got a, a really brilliant SLA first, and then or you use that first, and then you got a thirty five hundred, and you also got like a, a DTM center station, right? So like a also thirty five hundred, right? The good thing about that twenty five hundred maybe twenty five. It was a twenty five hundred hmm. plus. Yeah, yeah. So Those it was amazing, actually right? a really good machine. Yeah, and the good thing about that is because of my background on maintaining SLA machines, I could really because. They all work the same, just different mm-hmm. components. The good thing about that one is you can buy the parts. If the spare parts, you could buy just buy them online on eBay <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so that made it a lot easier to fix. It still mm-hmm. amazes me today that when you look at the shrinkage values on an S- SLS machine and how accurate you can get the parts, mm-hmm. it that's still fascinates me. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the shrinkage on an SLA part and it's minimal. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the shrinkage that goes into X, Y, and Z on a on an SLS machine, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's like how the heck do they calculate? <laughs> but you know, like, that's, like that's 0.3 or something, yeah, zero point three percent or something, and then well, yeah, but it varies, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. It depends on the geometry as well <laughs> and the material. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell yeah. anyone. <laughs> like, um, but no, but that's why I'm really uncomfortable about uh, structural parts or load bearing parts for 3D printing. I'm really uncomfortable with this. And I think. And and I seem to be the only one. Everybody seems to be charging ahead with this. And I'm like, how do we, you know, a, a cosmetic part or even like things like combustion chambers and stuff, that should be okay. But but like a load-bearing part, like a, you know, I'm just really worried about that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's something that, you know, people have to really learn about this technology and especially materials. You know, I've actually bought myself a little FDM machine that, even before I took it out of the well, I got it out the box and then I modified it before I turned it on. People have got this attitude that we can build anything, and because they have been told by you know, mm-hmm. different people that you can build anything, and yes, you can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. To mm-hmm. so me, a 3D printer is another tool that is in our armory of tools like CNC, handwork, uh, yeah, using a saw. It's just a tool. And one of the one of the first parts I built at Liverpool University was a guy came in and he wanted a box with a radius corners with five mil walls and a thick boss in the centre, and it would have taken an SLA two fifty probably twenty hours to build it at the time. And I just said to the guy, I said, "Here's the name of a model maker's up the road. They'll build that for you in three hours." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have done it really because it's costing <laughs> the business. But I don't see the point in using. You've got to use the right tool for what you're trying to do with it, and I always—that's the advice I always give to people. You know, if you're looking at buying a 3D printer, make sure you buy the right one for what you're doing. Right. You know, no. If, if, if ninety percent, right if, if eighty percent, yeah, if I, if eighty percent of your components need to be made out of nylon and they're going to be, they need to be tough, and then ten percent resin, or you, you can use the resin for, then you buy the SLS and you outsource the other, and vice versa. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things I've struggled with, really, is yeah, people. Mm-hmm. It's that syndrome I, men- I think I mentioned somewhere the other day. Um, it's like a soda stream or a, or a 2D photo printer. 
I bought mm-hmm. a 2D photo printer when the first cartridge ran out. It sits in the corner gathering dust now because mm-hmm. I realized actually you're just printing, you were just printing pictures just for the sake of using your printer. <laughs> yep. I no, I, th- I think that's a good point. I think I think we need to use it as well. We use it when it makes sense. I think it's a good point generally. I think and also like, but we're kind of. I called this before at one point. This blank canvas problem. So at one point, we don't know what to make because it's so overwhelming. Because we can make anything, or like you said, we've been told we can make anything, and then that also obscures kind of finding out what are the true value propositions. Apart from when somebody says like, "I I'm stuck," right? And then we're we're like heroes, right? We're like, "Oh yeah, we could do that," you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like the the PPE. Mm-hmm. You know, the PPE yeah. was fantastic yeah. for our industry. Personally, mm-hmm. I just looked and thought, why are we making them with 3D printing? Yeah. My, my The way that I would have done them is I would have 3D printed the tool and then injection model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I never understood because, this. Yeah. Because that's the way that it's you – know, I, I actually got involved with, um, with a surgeon uh, from Manchester, Univers- Manchester Hospital, and he, he had a really good idea. And So basically, they, they in the hospital – and this was a head surgeon. So I met, I met him on a motorway service station go in there had to stand two meters apart with masks on at the time you weren't supposed to be traveling unless you had a reason and we thought this was a good reason there was two policemen in there as well (laughs) but we were talking about basically what he had he worked at the front end of this of the hospital side of things and it's and this is when i realized how serious this thing was he wouldn't go and see his patients without he used to have an air fed mask on so it was, and then I thought, okay. And he said, when I've got staff that need to treat these people, he wanted to have the 3M, you know, the 3M face masks? Yeah, full face, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. they basically just went over your nose and mouth. Okay. And yeah, it has, yeah. it has no, two, not the shields. But, yeah, it has two, two filters on the side. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, those are nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so he, yeah, but he had, he had boxes full of, the, of the, the actual masks, but he didn't have any filters because oh, there was a shortage uh, of filters. Right. Yeah. So, but then he came and he had. He said, "I've got hundreds of this filter uh-huh. from a different machine." Yeah. So what? So what? I, square peg, said, round hole problem. Correct. Yeah. It's a bit like the Apollo thirteen. If they had a printer now, yeah, square hole. Yeah, easy. So I just went away, and then two days later, I called him back and said, "There you go." And what I did is I made an adapter that went between the mask and mm-hmm. the filter. Now that to me, I could have. I reckon you could probably fitted a couple of thousand on an SLS machine. In one build, yeah, and it was simple. It was eight O-rings in it, so it was sealed. Yeah, I like this because that was the example I said as well. I said we, we're really good at being like a duct tape kind of, you know, and we're really good at quick improvised solutions. So we shouldn't be doing this serial producing of these masks, however cuddly it is. We should be solving like like emergency things, you know. We should be solving problems that no one, no other technology can come up with, you know. Yeah, and uh, and. And this is a good example of how to do it. I think I think we just didn't have the tools or like the clearinghouse. There were some people that were saying like, yeah, we're going to work together on this and all this. But then they all ended up making masks. But we really didn't have a clearinghouse where somebody could say like, this is my problem. And then some engineer could work on it. And then we could solve that problem. Because I think that would, that would have made us much more valuable, I think. Yeah, that's all. We, in the end, what we do is that, that's what we are. We solve problems for people. And we have a new technology that can solve problems in a different way to the traditional stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You had your, your business for a while, and then you uh, you also worked for Alpha Form, right? Yeah, so and I then- worked for Alpha Form as a, as a service engineer and also put in the first filled materials into SLA machines, so that was fun as well. Mm-hmm. 
because one of the things that I found, so it, when you've got film materials, the material settles, and they, it's okay when you're testing them in a small batch, but as mm-hmm. soon as we got them into bigger machines, that's when I came across another problem, which was after about three or four millimeters, the machine leveling system would just go haywire. So instead of dipping down five millimeters and coming back up, it would be searching for its level and in the end would come out of the vat. Mm-hmm. So then I have to work out why it's doing this. And it's obviously a leveling problem. Now, in the back of a, an SLA machine, there's a leveling system, um, which has a laser diode that points down at the material and then goes back up and hits the sensor so that we know where the leveling system and the resin is leveled to that point. But because of, uh, but there's a, it's all done inside a small box, which is probably about 100 millimeters long and about 25 mil wide. And that shroud goes into the resin. Yeah, which with a clear resin or, or a normal resin is fine. But what I worked out is when that went down into the high viscosity resin, the level inside the chamber was slightly higher than the vat. It's the, the resin inside the vat. <laughs> Nothing would work. Out. And it wouldn't work. So the, and what, how I found it out is I took it all off, took the shroud off, and I built a part, and it built fine. So I'm thinking, okay, it's something to do with this. Then I worked out that that level's different. Ended up constructing one from cardboard, stuck it on a machine. And this is in the customers while I'm installing the resin, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> So he's coming down and he sees it. There's a cardboard shroud over there. Managed to work out, got it working. Went back to my hotel. I uh, had solid works on my computer. Drew it up. Next day, uh, built the part on the machine and put it on the machine, and it works. And that, that's a component that I get. Um, a lot of people at Amog had a problem. I just said, "Has anybody got a problem with this material?" Yeah. Do you want a solution? And I actually sent everybody the file because. It helps everybody use the machines properly. Yeah, I, I do love the idea, though, of you printing the part to fix the machine. Well, that was something I asked one of the design engineers at 3D Systems at the time. I said, how many times have you used a 3D printer to develop your machine? And they hadn't. And that, that was a bit, I found that a bit strange. That is shocking and strange. <laughs> 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 oh goodness! But um, and I think that's interesting. There's a nice, like, kind of like bridge to you getting involved with Amug. Amug, yeah. What is it? it's? It's a whole bunch of people to get together. And traditionally, we'll, we'll you know we'll take apart a machine or something. And the idea is just the additive manufacturing user groups. It used to be the 3D systems user group, and it's basically like people taking around the machines and nerding out over machine stuff. And there's absolutely no drinking. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> none at all, right? <laughs> not, not, not that you have no. to pay for. No, no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's an assault on someone's expense account, and no one's really sure who. Um, no, in, in the end, so actually working at Alpha Form was how I got mm-hmm. involved in yeah. AMUG because the boss of Alpha Form was a guy, um, I can't remember his name now, it's gone. Mm-hmm. But, but basically, yeah. he took me over to uh, AMUG just to show me what it was like. And at the time, there was only 150 people. Wow. Yeah, and uh, so you've got people like Graham Tromans, and Graham Tromans was one of my customers when I was at 3D Systems. Um, and, yeah, it was at first I was just going there looking at it, and I thought, we're learning so much here. And I thought, I'm not missing this. And that's when I started going every year, and it just grew and grew. And then I got involved by uh, – they asked me to do a couple of presentations, and then I was teaching people about the leveling issues things like that, and then showing them how to do blade gaps. Uh, some people used to bring an SLA machine in, and you could physically have a go at doing 
wave gaps and that's you know that's the sort of stuff that normally a field service engineer would do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um my this my, my personal taking on that as my business i t- i've written procedures and i give them to my customers because i don't want my customer down for if i've got to travel four hours i don't want my customer down for four hours paying my travel time when he can do that himself in an hour yeah that's fair um, the name of the person is ralph Diker. so ralph's the person that's up there sorry i forgot your name ralph <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure i'll forgive you <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so that's what it was all about, and then uh, I became the track lead. Oh, they asked me to be the track leader for the non, actually for stereolithography. Uh, so I did that, and then they said the year after, would you do non-metals? And I just said yes straight away. And then mm-hmm. I came back, and I just thought, man, that's everything, <laughs> apart mm-hmm. from the metals. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I put a lot on my plate, but it's so enjoyable and. Um, and then once I became the track leader for that, one of the things I noticed was lots of people from Europe were coming over, but they weren't getting involved as much as they should, like doing presentations. So I made a point of actually getting Europeans to do more presentations, and it worked really well. And then uh, why should I go to AMUG? Or Well, first of all, you don't want everyone, right? You, you just want people who are actually like, you know, kind of more hands-on kind of people who have machines and stuff, right? Yeah, you've, you have to own a machine. So basically, you've got to be a user of a machine. As they say, the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of motto is for users by users. Mm-hmm. And it's all about sharing your, your knowledge like I've done with people. You go there and then people are telling you things. And, you know, I'm always learning. One of the things that I'll never do is stop learning and I got, I've met some really cool young guys that come and do a presentation, and I'm like, man, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what it's all about. And then you, mm-hmm. can, the good thing is, you can go back to your own industry, and you can you can reference that to something you're doing inside. You mm-hmm. know, I've I've worked in done some work with people that manufacture fridges using three D printing, and some of those applications are relevant to automotive because in the end, mm-hmm. it's all a manufacturing process. So mm-hmm. yeah, you go to AMUG to learn to share. Uh, and I think the biggest thing about it, you, if you, the more you get involved, the more you will take away. I think so too. I think that's great. So you love that kind of spirit of, but you know, the thing is, isn't it now? Aren't we learning a little bit less collectively? Let's say, aren't a lot of more people thinking of things as being a little bit more proprietary and like procedures, uh, like that only this company does? Aren't we sharing a little bit less nowadays? Um, I'm not. <laughs> No, <laughs> that's, that's my philosophy. My, my, you know, one of the things, um, yeah, I suppose it was a bit naive at the time. So when I was at 3D Systems, they said, where can we sell these? And I went to our college, so I'm like, give them away to our college. Mm-hmm. And, and I can understand why they didn't at the time because they were so expensive. But mm-hmm. the reasoning behind that was a bit like the VHS and the Betamax videos. Yeah, If you put the machines into our colleges, universities, where mm-hmm. they're going to use it, every year, every year you're going to get 30 salespeople mm-hmm. going out into industries and they'll go yeah. and we got one of these yeah. but i can understand why they didn't want to do it because the machines were too expensive at the time no, that's, i, still, I know, think it's a good i think it's a valid strategy because huh? uh, i guess like given the margins on the material as well uh, they could still make a lot of money on that right so yeah that's the know, way reasonable. i, well, I, I yeah. would have done is give the machine away charge a little bit totally. more for the machine service contract um yeah and and and, and it's just i think the cad side of things have been very well aware of that for years so in i don't know about europe but in the uk there's certain cad programs that are given to school children they can just download them and use them 
Yeah, no, well, first no is SolidWorks. SolidWorks yeah, did this for cheap, and then later on, I think now everything. For, if you're a student, I think everything in Autodesk is free. I think. I mean, yeah, this so is that, this is an old strategy. It yeah. happens in the legal profession as well. Westlaw and LexisNexis are the two largest like legal providers. It's mm-hmm. free for all law students in the United States to use that, and then law firms have to pay an arm and a leg for that. So it, it is a it's a valid strategy, and I think it's a good yeah. one. I mean, yeah. I do a lot with schools. Uh, more because I think it's a cool educational tool yeah. uh, than anything else. But it also has a knock-on effect that you then, you're then you churning out a whole bunch of people that have used this technology, have an understanding of it, and then are going to move on to the next level and be like, where is this tool that I expect to have? Yeah. 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 All the while, at one point, you're, you're growing your business and you get involved in metal plating parts or metallizing parts, essentially. Yeah, basically, yeah. It was, it was developed just for the wind tools, really. And I said, and we went to Pat one and said, be interested in this. Two weeks later, he basically, well, he said yes. And then two weeks later, I just said, he gave me a call and said, how serious are you about that? I said, I'm already doing it. And then they helped us, worked with us, had their materials, specialists, um, test materials, um, and yeah, get the adhesion correct. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's how that started. And then it became, you know, we do a lot of, Bright, there was a lot of bright silver work done for prototype cars. So a lot of the cars that you see on with the big chrome grills, the original ones were all done there. That company's still going. Um, my partner mm-hmm. bought that that company out. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, that's been interesting. And then, and then later, now you have like AT three D squared or something. What's that? What do, what, what, what do people come to you for? Well, basically, this company is service and maintaining the legacy SLA machines because there's still a lot of them out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I said one of one of the customers I've worked with for a long time is Materialize. Help those guys, train their guys how to service their machines. Um, and the reason I got involved with Materialize was I think first time was probably twenty five years ago when um, the guys down at Ford, one of the operators, couldn't use the software that came with the machine, and mm-hmm. I was told to go and install materialized software on it and as soon as i saw it i'm like why the heck aren't we using this it saved me so much time (laughs) and so yeah it's been interesting to to do that yep i totally i think uh, and 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 you also uh save horses right sorry uh, you also save horses as a side gig right (laughs) oh yeah what's with the horse Well, I like to I like challenges. So you know, there's there's another one that came from. Uh, I'm, I'll go to this one on the metal plating. So Pat has a technical partnership. I, I think he mentioned it on his podcast. There's a technical partnership with an aerospace company, and I was asked to do something with the metal plating, which nobody had asked before. Not given any details, they just said we want you to metal plate the part, and we want you to get the part out of the middle and leave the metal. Okay, that's going to be interesting. So I looked at could we plate onto silicon. Can we place on, we've looked at plating onto polystyrene, but the chemicals in the process at the model before they started plating it. Right. Uh, and I looked at everything and I just thought, that ah, we'll have to give the wishes one a miss. But it ne- it, I never forget about it. All, it's always sat in the back of my brain. And then I was in Italy walking around the model shop and I saw this like a, a tube on the floor with, with sprues off it. And it was built from an EOS material, which was a graphite filled polymer. And I said, uh, can I have one? And I said, does it dissolve in anything? And he said, yeah, it's, it's, you can dissolve it in cellulose thinners. So I went back to the metal plating company. We ran it through the tank. 
did it overnight, put a millimetre of it, uh, drilled a hole in it, filled it up with cellulose thinness, threw it in a bucket. A day later, it was empty. So we ended up with an empty shell with all holes through it from this model. And then mm. that's when I slide it back across the table to Pat and said, there you go, done it. But it took two years to start that one out. <laughs> and then it was, Pat, Pat was like, how have you done that? And I said, you don't need to know how I've done it. I said, you just Magic. need to know we can do it now. <laughs> so they're the interesting things. And um, but that's probably why we've kept in touch for so long because um, we both have the same mindset. It's like, what else can we do with it? Um, yeah, right. It's just pushing it. And then that's how the, the horse came along is I've moved two of the machines. So I've got a Viper and the old 250. I've moved them up to a company. So a guy that makes custom-made furniture using concrete. Mm-hmm. So I've got some ideas about using 3D printing to do help him do this sort of thing, which hopefully we'll hear about in, in a few years. But then um, around the corner is a stables and a riding school. This lady came up and spoke to my, the, the guy I'm working with, and he said, they said, uh, can you get Andy to come and have a look? Went up there, basically went into this the sort of stables. There's a group of people there, one from a university, the vet, the, the, um, the farrier. And they explained what this horse had got, and it's a thing called canker. And he'd spent £4,000 on this horse on vet bills. And basically, they said, this is the last chance. If we can if we can fix it, fine. If we can't, the horse is going to get shot. So then I started looking up the, what, what the problem was. So I asked them, you know, why does it keep coming back? And basically, the horse's foot gets wet. It's a fungal growth. So that's what keeps it growing. And you mentioned duct tape before, Yoris, yeah? Mm-hmm. That is how they used to try and keep the horse's foot dry. So they would scrape all the the sort of fungus out, put the chemicals in it, and then wrap the horse's foot in duct tape. And then it'd be walking around in the damp and the wet, and it would get wet again, and it would just keep going around in a vicious circle. So I said, look, we can 3D print a plate to go on the bottom of there. Uh, And then I also asked them if they'd ever tried uh, silica gel. Yes, so basically we could put we could put like an in, an insert in the bottom of this plate that we were making that they could put silica gel in that's orange when it's dry and when it got wet it would go green and the owner could then just swap the cartridge out and put a new one in. Yeah, then what we did, what we did originally was we just built this and the, this shows how little I know about horses. There's a there's a triangle on the bottom of a horse's foot called a frog mm-hmm. and that basically helps the horse put the weight on it. Now when they said we need this foot this shoe making. Um, I built this so the the horse doesn't like having his feet picked up because it's in so much pain. So the way that we got its footprint is we put a piece of card underneath, drew around it, <laughs> and then that's what that was my starting. But because I've had people say, "Well, why didn't you just scan the horse's foot?" Because it, <laughs> it wouldn't let us. Yeah, it's not like a person where you can say, "All right, hold your hand there, don't move." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it was drawn that way, and I actually put the frog on the in- wrong side of the. I put it on the inside because I thought it was going inside the horse's foot and it's not, it's the other way up. So that was my first mistake. And I'm, so I'm learning a bit more about horses, sort of structure, bone structure and things. It's the next one. Uh, and it's amazing to see the pictures. So this horse's foot was a real mess. And then the, the sort of, the farrier cleans it all out, puts the chemicals in to try and keep it dry. And then, when he puts the plate on and nails on the horseshoe, because I, I built it from uh, TPU, when you nailed the horseshoe on, it sealed the foot closed. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why it was able to keep it dry. 
And the other thing is where the, uh, there's a triangle for the frog that I built onto it, that has got a different density inside there. Mm -hmm. So that's a solid part. The rest of it's flexible. Uh, and then, yeah, we left it on for five weeks, came back, and the difference was amazing. On one foot, it wasn't as bad as the other anyway. Uh, but I think we went up a couple of weeks. Uh, last week, I went up to put the next set on, and basically it's gone. The oh, horse is going to be fine. So they've got me... <laughs> I've now got two more projects to look at on horses because they said, right, can you come and look at this? <laughs> well, this one's a race horse, so it's, it's actually got a fracture in its leg. So I'm, I'm going to be looking at um, whether we can use 3D printing to make some sort of brace. But it's, nice. it's difficult with a horse because it has to stand on its leg. And you've got the tendons up the back, so you can't just put a plaster cast right like you do on someone's arm with hinges on and clip it on. Mm -hmm. Because when it goes around a horse's leg, you've got a tendon, a huge tendon that goes up the back of the leg that has to be able to keep moving. Yeah, it won't be running around, but it needs to stand up and walk around. So it's going to be interesting. So I've got a couple of ideas, and yeah, we'll mm -hmm. see how that one goes. And then there's another one that they want me to do to stop horses lose, losing their, their shoes when they're racing. So mm -hmm. okay. so it's been it's cool. an interesting – it's interesting. But it, it just shows you that if somebody with the experience of 3D printing talks to someone that's never used it before and you listen to their problems and you work together, it's amazing what you can do with it. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. And uh, thank you so much for, for being here today, Andy. Okay, that, look, that was great. Nice to talk to you guys, and thanks yeah. for having me on. And I, yeah. I don't know if any – will you, any of you guys be at AMUG? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything anymore. I don't know where we're going to be next week, but I'm going to try and be okay. there, yeah. Okay. I'll try and There's be another there. company I'm doing, working with as well called uh, Create Education, and that's where big companies like mm -hmm. a, a company such as BAE has donated a load of money to put printers into schools. Yeah, and okay, that is cool. fantastic because that's the way forward. These guys are putting these printers into schools because they know there's going to be a shortage of skilled engineers in the area, so they're teaching the oh, children. Oh, so they're prepping you know, now. Yeah, they're actually idea. educating the next, the next work, workforce, and that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, that is. Mm, awesome. And thank you, Mike. Uh, no, thank you, Mike. Why did I say Mike? Uh, I'm awake. Uh, thank you, Max, for being here as well. Oh, thanks, thanks, for your, thanks for having me on. It's been real fun, actually. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah. And yeah, have a bit of fun while we're still doing something that's really interesting. <laughs> totally, dude. And thank you guys for listening. My name's Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.